Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Claire Mutimer. And I'm Susie Coulson, and welcome to The Backstory. In each episode, we'll be hearing about an experience that has happened to someone that shaped who they are. 30 minutes that remind us that everyone's dealing with something. So we're a documentary podcast, a docupod. Except you made that word up. This week, we're delighted to be sponsored by Paula Comiskey, decorative artist. Paula specialises in decorative techniques such as gilding, marbling, graining murals and trompe l'oeil. If you're looking to create something unique in your home, then get in touch at paulacomiskey.com. Just follow the link on our website. In today's backstory, Claire went to meet two women who have made an unlikely friendship through a shared traumatic experience. Joy lost her son Ian to suicide 11 years ago and Catherine's sister, Alison, took her own life in 2015. When Catherine went in search of a support group, she met Joy, who'd previously run one, and together they got the group going again. In an ideal world, it's not a group anyone would want to join. None of us want to really know each other, actually, because our paths, we're all so different, you know, just different ages and stages of life and our paths just wouldn't have crossed had it not been for this this tragedy. Uh, no, nobody wants to really have met and be in this group, but it just provides such comfort really to everyone and to us. It is thought that a death through suicide is particularly complex and perhaps hard for people who haven't been through it to understand. Catherine and Joy have found comfort in repeatedly talking about the death of their loved ones and listening to the rest of the group. I wanted to understand this better, this complex nature of suicide grief and how to be a good friend to someone who has lost someone to suicide. I was intrigued as to what the conversations are at the group and what Catherine and Joy talked about in the early days, or still now. How sort of shocked I was and how, how sudden it was and um, all the all the what-ifs, you know, I would sort of replay scenarios in my mind that if... Alison hadn't done this or if I had said this you know the different outcomes so everything sort of came tumbling out really but um, definitely sort of the what-ifs and always the unanswered questions. I wanted to hear more about Catherine and her sister Alison's relationship. Her sister had a personality disorder diagnosed just before her death and apart from that Catherine was very much kept in the dark about her sister's mental health. And so it must have been really hard because you because she didn't talk to you about it, like, did you just feel that there was this kind of thing in the, you know, elephant in the room, as it were, that you weren't allowed to mention, or did you try and mention it, or how did you kind of? Um, yes, it was a bit of both. I did. Um, 
she did take a couple of tablets and I used to say to her, Alison, what, what are they for? And she just said, oh, it's just, just something I've got, you know, I've, I've got this pain. But she just didn't really like to talk about it and then she'd change the subject. And um, so I thought, well, I, I should leave that then. Um, so I could tell there was something not quite right, really. Um, but nevertheless, I still really enjoyed visiting her. But yes, there, there was definitely the elephant in the room that there was something that she wasn't telling me. Um, but no, no matter what I did, I couldn't really sort of get her to to sort of enlarge upon what she what she was telling me. And so every time I would come away back to Norfolk, I would just be really worried. Um, and also, over the course of um, the last year or so of her life, there would be many times when I would text her and I wouldn't hear back from her for two or three days which was quite unusual and now I know unfortunately from reading the medical notes it was when she'd actually overdosed she actually took eight or nine overdoses before the fatal one and so this was when she wasn't getting back to me when she was in hospital because of it uh, so that's a very hard thing to to understand as well um, and to learn after her death that she'd been having all these overdoses and I just had no idea and so I just wasn't able to help her at all because we were close, she, she just couldn't. And I just feel that it was her way of protecting me, although obviously what happened in the end just couldn't have been worse, couldn't have been the worst outcome. Catherine knew her sister Alison had had some physical illnesses over the last few years, which had stopped her from working. So sort of more recently, how often did you meet up and like what did you tend to do? And um, Well, I used to go and see her quite a lot. She moved from Manchester to Derbyshire, which is a lovely part of the country. And um, I really, really look forward to going and, and seeing her. It was a long journey. I used to go on the train, um, but it was a real highlight that I'd go and stay with her. She had a lovely little house. It was overlooking the peaks in the Peak District. And um, we would just sort of wander along the high street together, go for walks in the park, have coffees together, have meals together. And I just really, really look forward to, to these moments with her um but then when it was clear that she'd started becoming ill I just went up more and more um and and as I say I, I knew something wasn't quite right but I couldn't put my finger on it um so I would sort of see her every month actually it was quite difficult because I was I was working full-time and my children were younger then and my husband worked in London but um I just would go as often as I could and we still had a really good time but I knew that she was sort of becoming ill really. And when you um, came away from her each time like in that year before um, she took her life did you um, what were you thinking like did you sort of feel like it was her mental health that you were worried about or were you more worried about her physical things or? I think to start with um in that last year or year and a half, I was more worried about her physically. Um, but then as time went on, I thought... And, and then in the spring of 2016, she actually then told me that she had a psychiatrist and a psychiatric nurse. I, I suddenly realised that her mental health really wouldn't, isn't very good at all. Um, so then I was worried about her mentally. Um, and then in June, when I was coming home, I actually um, saw a job that uh, meant I could work just a few days a week and um, visit her for much longer weekends and spend longer with her. So I actually took the, I applied for the job. 
I got it. It's working for a charity in Norwich. Um, but unfortunately, I'd only been there for two weeks when I got the call to say that she died. It was the middle of the summer. It was the 25th of August. Um, it was actually my eldest son's 18th birthday. Um, he was away at the time. And I was, I literally had been in, in work for just two weeks and I just had, I just had a really, really strange feeling in the morning. I just, just kept crying and I just had no idea why. And I'd only been in touch with Alison the evening before, but I just had a, a really peculiar feeling. Um, so, and I had that all morning at work and then I had a call from Alison's neighbour to say that people were trying to get into her house um, and the light was on and there was no answer and I just, my heart just sank and and I just thought there's just something terribly wrong here. Um, I had to wait another hour until I got a phone call from a paramedic just to say that she's with my sister and there's there's absolutely nothing that she or anyone could do. It was just the, the biggest shock of my life, really. And, uh, you know, I just hate anyone to have to go through that, um, you know, unnecessarily. It was just absolutely awful. I just couldn't take it in. That's so painful. Yeah, very, very painful. Um, you know, I, I just remember that, the exact time, the exact day, even what I was wearing, what the paramedic said, just... You know, it's still just as clear as if it was yesterday, really. It just, just never leaves you. Do you find you play it through your head a lot? Yes, I do, yes. I'm, I mean, it, it's torture. Yeah, I just sort of can't really get it out of my head. Um, some things distract me, but it's always there, even if it's not at the forefront. It's just, just always there in the background, really. And so tell me what happened, like... Because your husband was in London, wasn't he? Yes, he was in London, and uh, my youngest son was here because was at home because it was school holidays. So, um, a colleague brought me home. So I just came home to my younger son, and well, I just was numb. Really, I just couldn't take it in. It was just, just absolutely horrendous. It's just the worst news ever. Um, and so, did you go up to Derbyshire, or what did you do? Well, we had to that afternoon. The um, the coroner, the coroner's officer called me um, and said that they'll be doing an inquest into the death of Alison and because it was sudden and unexpected and she was under the care of the NHS mental health team um, but I had to go up and identify her body the next day so my husband and I had to drive up to Chesterfield and that was just, just the most awful journey, having to drive for about five hours knowing that the reason for it is not to visit my sister but to have to identify her body in hospital morgue. It was just absolutely horrendous. And what had been your last contact with your sister? Well, it had been um, by text the afternoon before she died. Um she sent me just quite a happy text and, and I'd replied. And the trouble with people that are thinking of taking their own life, they just hide it so well. And a lot of the last contact with their family or friends is a happy one. And apparently she saw neighbours that evening, um, the evening before she died, and she went out for a meal on her own and she went to a wine bar on her own. Um, and I feel that she was sort of saying goodbye to people in these places that she knew really well. So it sounds like Catherine's sister had been planning her suicide 
and there were many complex issues surrounding it. But because she hadn't let on to Catherine about how she was feeling, of course it came as the most dreadful shock. And it's interesting you said to me that um, losing somebody through suicide is different. Like, like how is it different from losing somebody in a, another circumstance? Um, well, first of all, the fact that it's sudden, um, unexpected and absolute huge shock. And even if people do have sort of really well-known mental health problems, it's still a huge shock. Um, and the fact that they chose to die over living just seems inconceivable, really. And to not be with, with me and, and their loved ones, that is absolutely awful. So um, for all these reasons, it, it just sort of seems so different because, it, as I say, it just makes us sort of feel a bit worthless that we weren't worth that person living for, really, um, even though they take their lives because it, it's really to escape from their pain. It just It's just very hard that we feel that we couldn't save them, that, um, you know, if love alone could have saved them, then they'd still be here. Joy, who she has set the support group up with, had been supporting her son with his mental health problems for some time. Our son, um, at the age of 14, um, began to get depressed and he missed months of school. And then when he was um, but probably 17 or 18, he began to get highs that we didn't recognise as bipolar disorder. I'd never heard of bipolar disorder. And through my, a colleague of my sister's, she suggested that it could be bipolar disorder. And um, I took him to the, the doctor. The doctor didn't think he was because he'd never seen him high. Because Ian wouldn't go to the doctor when he was high because he didn't feel ill then. But he was referred to a psychiatrist who diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. And then a few months Later, the the um, psychiatrist had moved on, so he had to see a new one. And he was. I went with him. The doctor said, "Could I be with him at the time?" The doctor said, "The psychiatrist said that he was mildly bipolar. He should be able to come off tablets at some point. He wouldn't need to see him again." And that really discouraged Dean. I can remember when we got home saying, "Well, perhaps the doctor's right. He knows what he's he's doing." Three days later, Ian took an overdose. He said he hadn't planned it, but he just started taking his tablets and carried on. In the morning, I went into his room and I knew right away that he'd done something. So we called the ambulance. And it was a big overdose, but he said afterwards, he said, Mum, I had an inclination it wouldn't kill me. So we knew it was a cry for help. Ian survived the overdose and spent the night in hospital. And then the following week, the community health team meeting took place with the psychiatrist. And we were offered help, an appointment six weeks later, which really, this was just before Christmas, it was 3rd of December, he took the overdose, the appointment was for the 21st of January. But we thought they knew what they were doing, we just trusted them. Ian was really struggling with this long wait. Then on Christmas Eve, we went out for a couple of hours um, to see friends, because we hadn't delivered presents, I hadn't really been out for a few weeks, because I was so worried about Ian. And um, when we came back, we found him in the, hanging in the garage. Um, it was just such a shock. I, 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 can't, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe he'd done it. We don't think it was planned. We think it was impulsive on the night. Uh, we feel guilty for going out, but we thought he was feeling better. He began to read books. He was using his computer. And I can remember saying, you know, we won't build. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, I didn't really want to go. He said, oh, I'll be fine, Mum. He sat on the sofa with a bag of popcorn, his laptop, and he seemed fine. But it wasn't till after he died at the inquest, the coroner beforehand told us that it's when somebody's feeling better, that's when they tend to do it. Not when they're at their lowest, because they haven't got the emotional energy to, to think about it. And once they're feeling better, they can consider their future. And that's often when it, when it happens. Um, Ian was loving, he was popular, although he didn't feel he was. He was affectionate. He was just a lovely guy. And he was 24 when he when he died. And we really believe it's because he thought he wasn't going to get the help. No one can imagine a worse scene to come back to on Christmas Eve. 11 years later and Joy still doesn't celebrate Christmas. Both Joy and Catherine feel let down by the mental health service Ian and Alison received. Joy wishes that the doctors had spoken with her more, but due to confidentiality... This was tricky. At the, at the end, when the investigation was done, they did say that on hindsight they should have talked to the family who knew him best. And I think that's something that... It's very difficult with an adult. I can understand the confidentiality. But if you can save somebody's life, potentially, by talking to people, I, I find it difficult that, that that can't be done. And obviously they... Perhaps it would have helped Ian if they they talked to us and really. Because I, th- I think when somebody goes to the doctor, talks to a psychiatrist, I don't think they perhaps tell the full truth. Ian especially didn't complain. He would only answer what he was asked. He wouldn't volunteer anything else. 
So probably if they talked to us, they would have found out more background information than, than he had actually told them. It's, it's just the things that you don't know until afterwards when it's too late. And you think, if I knew that before, would it have changed things? I think this last comment goes to the heart of so much pain for families of loved ones who have taken their own lives. One of the elements of suicide being such a hard death to come to terms with is hindsight. Some things become clear following the death that, of course, weren't clear beforehand. I feel so guilty. I'll never forgive myself for going out that night. But there were circumstances that that pushed me to go out. Um, On hindsight, I... I, I suppose I couldn't understand how bad Ian felt because I hadn't gone through that myself. So in hindsight, you know, you, you think, well, I should have, because I know how it feels now, I wish I'd picked up on it, but I couldn't because I didn't know how, how it felt. On hindsight now, I wish that we'd known... Um, I, don't, I don't think there is anything really in hindsight... Because you had had all those, like, no, but I think because you'd had, you'd had an amazing relationship with him and been able to talk about those things. I think sometimes, I mean, I've heard of cases where the mum just had no idea that they were depressed. Like, but you were obviously very in touch with how he was feeling. I mean, it was just like a one night. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't watch him all the time, could you? No, you, you couldn't watch him all the time. And because he seemed so much better... I didn't want to go out, and on the way home, I was anxious, thinking, I hope Ian's okay, I hope he's all right. And I still feel it sometimes as I drive up th- th- that road, like we did in that night, and I see the house, that sinking feeling still happens. But I, I know we did do all that we could with with what we knew. Um, we helped him financially, because debt is another um with bipolar disorder, the spending is a, is a big thing. And we'd helped him with debt. We knew we'd done that. We knew He knew that we were always there for him. He knew how much he was loved. It was just going out that night. And if we'd known that, that it's when they feel a bit better, it's more likely to happen, we wouldn't have gone out. But I think with other people, there are lots of things in hindsight that they pick up on that they should have, they feel they should have done, but they didn't. But it's it's just it's just the way it is. I think it's just so common with with suicide. If you're not expecting it, you don't pick up on it. I was intrigued to know how friends and family reacted to such traumatic deaths. Some people, it's such a shocking thing to happen. Um, it's so incomprehensible that people just don't know what to say and a lot of people after they've sort of heard the news initially there's a lot of avoidance from people that you sort of thought were really good friends or neighbours the trouble is that because such huge traumas aren't really spoken about in day-to-day life um, people just don't know how to handle it I mean, even, you know, death itself isn't spoken about. So when something happens like this out of the blue, it's just so shocking that it's almost, we're sort of treated like a leper sometimes. There are a few people um, that are the opposite and will sort of go out of their way to keep in touch. 
But I've had a lot of people that I thought I was really close to have just said, oh, you know where I am if you need me. Would you say that it's more helpful to be proactive? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I really have appreciated anyone that um, has sort of kept in touch with me, even just a quick text saying, how are you? You know, how are things? Jory had a slightly different experience. I, I was very fortunate. I didn't have any problems, really. People were very compassionate. They came to see me. I think I was I was fortunate, really. And has that support sort of remained, or like, did, did people realise that it was needing to be quite long term? Going to the group really helped because I didn't want to burden anybody, but I felt that I could go to the group, say what I, I anything I wanted. I could cry; it didn't matter. Whereas I had to compose myself with other people. That helped. I had one friend who was really good with me. She was she was very good. Um, but no, I I think having the group to talk to, I knew I had that every two weeks, and I just looked forward to that. I would cry all the way there. I would cry when I was there. I would cry all the way home. But it was a, it was a relief. I knew I had that opportunity every two weeks to talk about it, and in between, I. I just had to cope. I, I, I had no other option. I just had to cope. To you to said work. one of your friends was really good. What was the really good thing that that person did? Well, this this friend had experienced a near suicide in her family. So she would some understanding of the, the worry I was going through. She she came to visit, but she would call regularly. And I, although she didn't have to say too much... I knew she really cared. And even now, after 11 years, when th- when things go, go wrong in her family, she's been through quite a bit now with family illnesses, she, she'll say, I know it's not nearly as bad as what you've been through. And I said, well, it, it's just different. It's not a case of being worse. I think that acknowledgement of someone else's experience when you're in the midst of your own is always impressive. But she's just been so caring and and even now she'll talk about it whereas most friends wouldn't they think you should really like like with Christmas I I can't celebrate Christmas I just can't I haven't had the Christmas tree since Ian died everything was given away we I haven't done Christmas cards I just don't like Christmas I'll give presents and through the year I'll buy them to avoid having to go through all the Christmas festive season and do that the, the whole Christmas thing But she, she's very understanding. She can understand why I don't want to do that. But some, some friends will think, you should be enjoying Christmas now. You, know, you, should, you should be able to do that now. And I just can't. I can't listen to a Christmas carol. I just burst into tears. It's just too emotional. So Christmas is horrendous. But for Christmas Eve, a nice little ritual has been established. Christmas Eve, one of Ian's best friends has been absolutely wonderful. He comes to see us every Christmas Eve. He spends Christmas Eve that evening with us. And we talk about Ian and the, the, the sort of, uh, as the years have gone on, we've talked more about the fun side of Ian and it's been easier to cope with, less sad. And it's just part of Christmas Eve now that, that this friend comes over. He's been, he's like a like another son to us. He's fantastic. And when we go away, he'll take us to the airport and he's taking us out for meals. He's just wonderful. Just love him. Mm. Oh, a lovely boy. That's amazing. 
Both Catherine and Joy have suffered from depression since they lost their relatives. For survivors of suicide loss, developing symptoms of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder is really common. It's just sort of affecting me in every way. Um, The other thing it affects when somebody takes their life is your sense of self-worth. You feel worthless yourself because you couldn't help them. So this sort of lead can lead to a downward spiral of depression as well. Um, I suppose I could say I'm up and down. Joy has suffered really badly with her mental health and was referred for specialist treatment. I was suicidal and it wasn't until months later that the link worker said to me there weren't very many people that he lost sleep over, but I was one of them. And I, I, was a, I just couldn't believe that I'd come across that bad but obviously I had I most people would Norman used to say that most people don't want to die they just want to get out of their pain which I think is true but I really wanted to die and I expect the link worker had had picked that up he was very he was very compassionate he was lovely Um, and the psychologist was was very good as well but I still don't enjoy life at all, really. Um, I can't say that I really want to, to, to go on and enjoy things, even now. And I am on medication. It's just been um, increased, in fact. Um, I think I've just had so much anxiety with, with losing one son and another one being mentally ill that my anxiety is very real. As Joy mentions here, she has a second son, he now himself suffers from depression, not through a diagnosed um, bipolar disorder like his brother, but depression through just the circumstances he's gone through. He's had all the triggers. He will lie for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, feeling really ill. Maybe after a couple of days he feels better and then and slips down again. Um, he's finding it very difficult. Yeah, it's when you set out having children, this isn't the, quite the plan, is it? You look back and think of things they did when they were young, and I think if I'd known then what I know now, it would have been unbearable. I haven't really looked at photographs of Ian when he was little yet. That's after 11 years on. But it's still too emotional to look back and think what he was like as a child. and To think if I'd known then that he would end up doing what he did. It's just so painful. And I think with, with suicide, it's the thought that somebody actually left you. It's not an accident or something they couldn't avoid. They, they felt so bad. They had The only way they could get out of it was to leave you. And as a mother, that's really hard. I'm, I'm not angry with them. I never was. Some people are angry when, when people take their own lives because they've left them. I never felt angry with Ian because he was ill. And I think he didn't think he was going to get the help. 16 people kill themselves every day in the UK. So this is why Catherine and Joy's friendship and the group they run together is so important. And even though it's it's a terrible tragedy when somebody contacts us, I'm just sort of pleased that, that we might be able to help them and to provide support. And, um, and you know, I'm just sort of pleased that when they want to come along because I may have been suffering alone for quite a while. Um, and it, it doesn't really affect me. Some people think that it might make me feel worse or sadder if somebody's sort of sitting there really crying, but, but it just doesn't somehow. 
So, yeah, I think putting my energies into that is, you know, really, really helpful for me. Our thanks to Catherine and Joy. As we said before, if you need any support as a result of listening to this programme, then there are some brilliant organisations in our show notes and on our website, thebackstorypodcast.co.uk, along with details of Empathy, the support group that Catherine and Joy run in Norfolk. Please join Claire and me this Friday when we'll be talking about this episode in Backchat. So do let us know your thoughts before then. You can get in touch in all the usual ways. On social media, we are The Backstory Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at The Backstory Pod on Twitter. Make sure you subscribe. And if you like The Backstory, then a review on Apple Podcasts really helps us. Thanks so much for listening. See you on Friday. Thanks again to our sponsor, Paola Comiskey, decorative artist. If you're looking to create something unique in your home, then get in touch at paolacomiskey.com. Follow the link on our website. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.